noticed how the question why is a way to clip your wings when you'd like to fly why should I live something new should I even try and you're trapped in the labyrinth of the question why why because 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 it goes on and on tangled up in a web of reasons while your life flows by well we've got an alternative one we've all forgot when you ask yourself why should I why not why not live something new why not climb a tree why not live a mystery why not let yourselves be we are free to fly free to live free to die we are free to be who we are we are is free that's who we really are why not 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 if you've got a good reason not to swim or fly like you're standing on the edge of a cliff somewhere trust your body to tell you so without always asking why only look around you is there danger there or are all your monsters simply made up out of air we are free to fly free to live free to die we are free to be who we are who we are is free that's who we really are why not why not why not why not sing with me why not why not why not why not why not if there's somebody in the room with you look them in the eyes and sing it to them why not 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 Why not? Why not? Why not? Why not?
I'd like to start by telling a bit of a story. It's a kind of a Zen story. It's the story that you probably all heard. It's the story of the Zen priest who is a monk who is asleep, and uh, he awakened from his sleep, and he had a kind of look of consternation on his face. And his friend, the monk next door to him, said, Why did you wake up with that look of consternation on your face? What's, what's the matter? And the monk said, Well, I can't decide whether I've just awakened from a dream in which I was a butterfly, or if a butterfly is now dreaming that he's me. That's exactly where the hero's journey takes place. That place between dreaming and awakening in which you're not sure of which dimension you're in. I used to travel a lot, and while traveling, I'd wake up in the middle of the night in Frankfurt or in Paris or in, the, in Ireland or someplace, and, and it would be dark, and of course I'd need to go to the bathroom, and I wouldn't know where it was. I wasn't sure, is this my childhood home? Is this my home in San Francisco? Is this my Frankfurt apartment? Where am I? That's that place where you're not quite sure of what, which dimension you're in. That's the place, that place between, that magical land between here and there is the place that the hero's journey takes place. It's, it takes place on that borderland between dreaming and awakening. It's a kind of magical place. And as you're going through the hero's journey, you, it's like going in and out of a dream world, going in and out of one dimension and into another in order to find out what resources you have in the lower dimension and the other dimension that you can bring into this dimension. This dimension which I call the agreed-upon place. That is, we all agree that that's a floor there, and that's a ceiling there, and that's a man with a shirt on, and, and this is another man with a shirt on. Because if we didn't all agree, it'd be terrible. I mean, we'd get all mixed up. But we all agree that this is the way it is. In the other place, in that other dimension, if I walk into the room with rabbit's ears and a donkey's tail, it's perfectly normal, even though you may disagree with that and say, what's, what's this guy doing? Still, it's perfectly normal because that's the place where we can disagree or we can have different images. It's the dream, the other dimension, the dimension of dreams. And that's the dimension. It's, it's in between those two dimensions that the hero's journey takes place. I'd like to start by telling a bit of a story also of how the, how the hero's journey began for me. It was back in the 70s, I was working, I was working in, the, in the hospitals. I was teaching at Esalen, I was learning at Esalen, and I was also going out to the various hospitals, to the lockup wards where the, the people were uh, going through psychotic episodes and they couldn't go out because they were... In, they were too much in that other dimension. They could not, uh, they could not uh, cope with the everyday world. And I was going there not to work with the clients, not to work with the ones that were going through an episode. I went there to work with the doctors and nurses because there was this kind of um, experiment going on here in San Francisco and in the area in California uh, in which instead of drugging a patient when he was going through a, a psychotic episode, the idea was that maybe they could work with the patient and help him work his way through emotionally, work his way through whatever kind of dementia he was experiencing. 
the Stan Groff used to call that, or calls that, the, the um, a spiritual emergency. In other words, the spirit is emerging, and if the spirit is emerging, sometimes it's taken as madness. However, if it's a spirit emerging, maybe it can be worked with, and, the allow, and that can allow the spirit that is emerging to come forward. Um, so, but the problem with that was, if you've got a group of people going through these emergencies, and not taking any drugs, not giving any drugs to calm them down, then you've got a very active ward. I mean, there are people going all over the place doing all sorts of different kinds of things. And they would vigil somebody who was going through a violent session, and they would go into a special room and never be alone in that room. Somebody would be in there to vigil them. Well, now imagine if this person who was going through a difficult time was working on, let's say, their relationship to their father, and the, 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 the nurse or the uh, uh, mental health worker had not worked through his or her relationship with his or her father, then this would touch off a lot of their own stuff. So they would find themselves in the middle of their own emotional state because they're watching or vigiling a person who's going through his work or his stuff, his material. And I came to work with the doctors and nurses that were working with these people in this kind of situation to help them release and work through and organize and reorder their own internal stuff, and also to help them kind of create a bond, a, a bond within the faculty, kind of a family bond within the faculty, so that they could help each other if they were having problems, they could go to each other, they could ask each other for whatever kind of uh, support they needed. And it was, I enjoyed working with them because I enjoyed the fact that these people were working with these people in this new and, and at that point, novel way. And one evening, I remember we were sitting around the fire after a, after a, se a few sessions, and um, one of the nurses said to me, you know, when I see what happens to these people, especially a first-break schizophrenic, who comes into the hospital, mad as a hatter, and goes through his process. And then at the end of that process, seems to come together at a much higher level of integration. I feel jealous. I feel like, well, why can't I do that? But I don't have the chemistry, or I don't have the, the whatever it is. I don't have the luck. I can't do it. So I feel jealous that, that I can't allow myself, or I can't give in to that whatever that is, that they go through in order to reintegrate at a higher level. Well, this interested me because I had had some uh, work or some um, fascination um, with the Native American traditions, with the tribal traditions, with the uh, aboriginal traditions of working with people um, to help them through kind of psychotic episodes. And I thought it might be interesting to try to create some sort of rite of passage to help these people, these nurses and doctors, to be able to experience their own uh, episode of schizophrenia so that when they're dealing with somebody going through that episode, instead of looking in a book to say, oh, well, he's behaving like this, that means he must be thus and so, they can come from their own self and say, I had that experience in my mini 
episode, and I understand what it is, and so I can relate from my own experience. That was my purpose originally in the creation of The Hero's Journey. I wanted to do a kind of ritualized schizophrenic episode uh, for the doctors and nurses so that they would have an experience that they could then relate to the patients from their own experience rather than from a book. I had had my own experience, so I knew what it was to be looked at from a book. Well, I then thought, well, what, what do I know about this? How can I, how can I, what can I delve into to help me with this? And I had had some experience with the work of Joseph Campbell and also with the work of John Weir Perry, who was a man who had been, who was a Jungian analyst who had worked a lot with the connection between mythological uh, material and, uh, and psychotic episodes. And they both had come to the conclusion that in a way, a schizophrenic episode has a, has a similarity to a heroic quest. There are certain things that seem to be evident in a, a schizophrenic episode that, that are very similar to a heroic quest. So I had read and worked with the, the Hero with a Thousand Faces, the book of Joseph Campbell, and I thought, what if I were to take the plot of the hero's journey, the story, the, the, the kind of universal plot of the hero's journey and put a, make a, create a workshop or a rite of passage out of this plot in order to give these doctors and nurses, these people who are working with people in this kind of state, the chance to have their own experience of it. And so that's how I began the work with the hero's journey. And I was working with one of the ideas from a myth, actually, it's the story of Dionysus. I don't know if you know the story of Dionysus, but it's one of my favorite stories because Dionysus is one of my favorite gods. There's this, the story goes like this, and I'm a storyteller, so I'll tell it as a story. The princess Semele, she was the daughter of the king, and she one day was out in the forest somewhere, and she met this beautiful young man who said that he was Zeus, and they fell in love with each other and they made love together and she had a wonderful time, ecstatic experience and she came rushing home to all of her sisters and she said, you'll never know what just happened to me. I met Zeus in the forest and we made love and it was magnificent. And the sisters said, oh yeah, I know what that's all about. Some shepherd sees you running around in the forest. He comes up and he says, hey girl, I'm Zeus, let's make love and you fall for it. I mean, that's, you're a sucker. Come on, this was not Zeus, this was some shepherd, somebody was putting a, making fun of you. And she said, no, 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 I'm sure it was because he was so sincere. And the sister said, listen, if it's really Zeus, go out into the forest, meet him again, and ask him to swear that he'll give you a gift by the river Styx. If he does that, then tell him that you want to see him in all his glory. She said, of course, I'll do that, I'll do it immediately. So she ran back out into the forest, searching for her friend. She saw him there and she came up to him and he said, hello, darling. And they, you know, they did what people do at that moment. And then after they had embraced and kissed and, 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 and made some sweet talk with each other, she said, listen, I want a gift from you. He said, ask me anything. She said, swear by the river Styx. He said, okay, I swear by the river Styx. She said, show me yourself in all your glory. And he said, now, wait a minute, wait a minute now. If I show you myself in all of my power and all of my glory, it'll be too much for any single human being to bear. You'll fall dead immediately. He says, 
I want to make sure that, that this is who you really are. You're not, you're not seducing me with a game. Show me, it's okay. Show me yourself in all your glory. He said, well, okay, baby. Bow. And there he was in all his glory. And she looked at him, and in a state of wild ecstasy, she fell dead. And she already had the baby Dionysus aborting in her womb. So before she died, Zeus reached into her womb and took out the, the, the infant Dionysus, cut open his thigh with a fingernail, and put the, the fetus in his thigh, put, brought the thigh back together. Men have always wanted to give birth, and so this was the beginning of patriarchy, so this was his way of doing it. He then had a baby in his thigh, and his thigh got bigger and bigger, bigger until finally the baby was born. In the meantime, Semele died. So Dionysus was born then out of the thigh of Zeus, and he was given into a kind of Asian culture of some form, of some sort, to be brought up and trained in mystical traditions and things like this. And when he was about 14 or 15, he decided that he, it was now time for him to come back to Thebes, which is where his mother was, the, she was the princess, a princess of Thebes. He was going to come back and he wanted to, first of all, take vengeance for his mother at some level, but also establish that he was, in fact, the son of Semele and the son of Zeus, therefore a demigod or a god. And he had long golden hair flowing down his back, and he wore a, a, a leopard skin, and half, half his shoulders were bare, and he danced beautifully with a, with a stick. He would do this incredible dancing with a stick. And, and as he was dancing, or as the women who followed him began to dance, they experienced kind of extraordinary visions. They experienced transcendental visions. So he came then, he comes into Thebes. Now Thebes was a very kind of right-wing uh, community, you know, very kind of gray flannel togas, you know, they, they were very, very uh, self-righteous, very orderly, very obedient to the rules. And into the middle of this very orderly group of people comes this man with the long flowing hair and the, 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 the leopard skin and with these dancing girls behind him. And this is creating chaos. So he comes right in and he goes immediately to the, to the um, chamber of the princesses, of the young girls of the kingdom. And he says, listen, I am the god Dionysus. I am the son of Semele and Zeus. And it is you who sent her out to get here to prove, have him prove that uh, he was Zeus, and she died as a result of this. Now, I'll forgive you for that. If you will simply do this little dance that I'll show you how to do, you adore me as a god. And the way you adore me is to just take the stick and do this dance that I'll show you how to do. And if you do the dance, it's called the Lesser Dance of Dionysus, then I will show you places that you never dreamed possible. I will take you to places that you never dreamed possible. However, if you refuse to adore me, if you refuse to do the lesser dance of Dionysus, I shall cause you to do the greater dance of Dionysus, 
which is madness. Uh, Dionysus, you do the greater dance, drives you mad. I mean, it's the madness that looks like sanity. The Iraq War, the Vietnamese War, the, where people are going off uh, into a kind of madness thinking that they're being sane. Well, the girls deny, the women deny uh, his existence, and he drives them all mad, and they go running off into the hills, and they go, they go running off with the wolves, and they feed serpents at their breast, and, and they're chopping down trees, and they're doing... And these are princesses. I mean, you know, these are princesses. The princesses from, uh, from Bush's, you know, from Bush's family, they're, they're that, that kind of people that, you know, they're very straight and religious and all of this, but in the, in the right-wing direction, suddenly they're out there stripped nude running in the woods. Well, the son of um, one of the princesses, the, the sister of Semele called Agave, is the king. And Dionysus does the same thing with the king. He, he tempts the king to go out into the king. Is the, he's the same age as Dionysus. Actually, they could be twins. They look so much alike, except the king is very straight and narrow, and Dionysus is very curly. And um, the Dionysus convinced his name is Pentheus, he convinces Pentheus to go out and see what these women are doing. I mean, aren't you interested what these women are doing out there naked in the woods? And Pentheus is a young boy, he's 14 years old. He, he pretends he's not interested, but he is. So Dionysus tempts him, and he goes rushing off into the woods with Dionysus, but he has to dress like a woman, because if they see that he's a man, they might destroy him. So he goes dressed like a woman out into the woods, with Dionysus, this football player dressed like a woman out into the woods. And he's out in the woods and Dionysus said, listen, you need to cl climb up to the top of this tree and watch from the top of the tree because if they see you, they'll kill you. They're mad. They're absolutely ravishing mad. And so the Pentheus climbs to the top of the tree. And in the meantime, his mother sees a lion at the top of the tree, a mountain lion climbing up the tree. It's her son, but she doesn't know it. And she gets with the other uh, uh, mad women, and they tear the tree out of the ground, and it falls to the ground. She cuts off his head, puts it on a stick, and goes running into town saying, you men think you're the only hunters here. Look at the mountain lion I just got in the woods. And her father sees that she's carrying the head of her own son, and he gradually has to make her see what she's done, bring her back into her reality to realize that to disobey the god Dionysus, to avoid doing the lesser dance of madness, one has to do the greater dance of madness, which is what she's done. Well, my idea in the hero's journey is to let people have a lesser dance so they don't have to do the greater dance. And the hero's journey is the lesser dance. It's like a ritualized form of madness so that they don't have to do the bigger form of madness. This principle, the idea of the lesser dance and the greater dance, became the kind of model for the hero's journey. My idea being that if people did the lesser dance, the lesser form of schizophrenia, they would not be forced to do the greater form of schizophrenia. And as to whether it was successful or not successful in those terms, 
I can't fully say. I've had people who have had episodes of schizophrenia come to me after having done the hero's journey, and some of them have said there were so many parts of the hero's journey that reminded me exactly of things that I went through. And other people who said it had nothing to do with my experience. I had not, It was nowhere near what my experience was all about in, when I went through my own episode. So whether or not it, it became ritualized schizophrenia, I know what it did become. It became a chance for people to experience in a kind of psychodramatic way the process of change because it gives the map of change. Every time there's a change taking place in your life, then you go through some form of the hero's journey. There's a part of you that, uh, that, that fights against you. There's a part of you that wants to go and do something new. And, and then they have to confront each other and do something about bringing these forces together in order for the change to take place. 